On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss what we know so far about the engine failure aboard United Airlines Flight 328 and what investigators and regulators are doing now. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz. And hello, Ian. We've got another jam-packed episode, don't we? Hello, Jason. We do. Coming into the weekend, we had a show lined up where we were going to have to finally buy Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren his uh, sub sandwich. He he was about to earn his sub sandwich. We're going to talk about a lot about aviation memorabilia and, and some really cool stuff from airlines in a bygone era and and we were really excited about it and then this weekend happened his free sub will have to wait two weeks his free sub will have to wait two weeks indeed so on saturday morning in europe a 747 departing maastricht had some pieces depart one of its engines and Departed not long after departure, rained down engine pieces, and unfortunately injured someone on the ground. And the Dutch investigative body is currently looking into that particular incident. And then just a few hours later- That was uh, only the appetizer for the Yeah, day. yeah. Then just a few hours later, a United 777-200 was departing Denver in about four and a half minutes after departure. Its engine also went boom. And in a big, spectacular way. Yes. And so the first aircraft was a cargo 747. So there was some debris. The aircraft circled while checklists were run, and they made a safe diversion to Leipzig. The United flight, obviously, was – well, not obviously these days. Uh, the yeah. United flight <laughs> – That's actually a good point. There, it yeah. may not actually have yeah. any passengers that's, on board. That's true. But this particular United flight going from Denver to Honolulu did in fact have passengers aboard. And 241 the, to be precise. Yeah, which that number – we'll set that aside for a moment. Maybe come back to that later when we talk about what flight traffic is up to. But – the photos and video from inside this particular aircraft, anyone listening to this podcast has probably seen those. If you haven't, we will put a link to the show notes because, well, they're they're really quite something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's no surprise that we got such detailed and high-resolution pictures and videos, but I don't think any of us initially during this incident expected to see the amount of engine carnage and engine fire as we did. The videos were from someone on the right-hand side of the aircraft, very far up, probably up in, in business or first class, whatever it is on that aircraft. But it showed an engine just absolutely obliterated. The cowling inlet was gone. The inlet or the cowling itself was gone. The engine, although it was windmilling and probably shut down at that point, was still on fire. Um, it, it is one of the most dramatic videos of an engine failure that has not come out of a Hollywood feature film. Yeah. I mean, the entire cowling was gone so that you could see the combustion chamber of the engine. The engine wasn't on fire where it wasn't supposed to be on fire. You're just not supposed to be able to see that part of the engine. 
So, I mean, very spectacular footage. It first came to my attention about five minutes after they had made it back to Denver. And the the first picture I saw was the cowling, the inlet cowling in someone's front yard. Yeah, just barely missing a house by what looked like a couple of feet, if not less than that. And at that point, you don't think much. You say, oh, the engine cowling in, that's not supposed to happen. But I don't think anyone expected in the minutes and hours following to see just how much damage actually occurred to that engine. And later, we would find out to the aircraft itself. Yeah. When I first saw the the inlet cowling, I was like, oh, wow, that's not supposed to happen. But because it was the whole inlet cowling, I figured it had just fallen off. Right. It didn't look damaged in any way. It looks like it. the joke goes, the front fell off. It literally looked like the front fell off, not that it was yeah. exploded off. Because the initial reports didn't contain the information about there was an explosion, people saw smoke or anything like that. It was just, hey, look, there's a piece of an aircraft in this guy's yard. And then the other reports start to filter in. And then the person who posted the the video of the combustion chamber still firing was kind of the the first indication that, oh, this was a much more serious incident. And then we start to see the damage to the the fan blades as the NTSB has released some photos and the damage to the to the fuselage. Although I will note that the NTSB did say even though the fuselage was damaged, the damage is minor and is kind of all under the wing. So thankfully, it wasn't a situation where where there was debris being ejected into the cabin in this particular case. So that's a, a very good thing. And Jason, we were chatting over the weekend and you asked, was this an uncontained engine failure? And my response was- Begin the debate. Well, it, yeah. My response, how could it not be? And I was- I was wrong. It was a contained engine failure. By the strictest definition. By the strictest definition. An uncontained engine failure. And we will point out that this is one of those things where it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. This is a very serious incident. And certainly the NTSB is, is investigating. The FAA has done some investigating and has acted already, but we'll get to that in a moment. But the chairman of the NTSB, Robert Sumwalt, said- we can talk about this, but in the strictest sense of the word, it was a contained engine failure because the fan blades were contained by the engine shroud. So, I mean, just the amount of engineering, setting aside the fact that there may be engineering issues with the fan blades, but the amount of engineering that goes into making sure that if something happens, the damage is contained and limited as much as possible, never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. So, I mean, there's backups for backups and backups. And here you have the engine of a, what is it, a 25-year-old 777 pretty much tearing itself apart. And they were able to land just a few minutes later. I'm sure it was an exceptionally overweight landing. You know, the aircraft itself, the fuselage had holes in it, but there you go. It landed safely and there wasn't a single injury on board, which honestly, in this case, was probably more luck than anything else. We could have very easily had a Southwest-style incident that we had a couple years ago with an uncontained engine failure where pieces of the engine did break one of the windows on board and unfortunately lead to the death of one passenger. That could have easily happened in this circumstance. But I think luck was 
on everyone's side this time, and that did not occur again. Yeah, the aviation aspect or the aviator aspect of all of this, I think is one of those things that you really can't overlook. I mean, the engine is engineered to withstand catastrophic damage and the aircraft is designed so that it can fly on one engine. And you have two pilots working as quickly and as diligently as they can to bring the aircraft back down. And I don't want to overlook the fact that what they did, and we can talk about this is trained for over and over and over again. You know, one of the most common scenarios is, you know, as far as simulator training and things like that. And one of the best things I've read so far about the crew workload and things is on Twitter. He's Miami Rick, and we'll put a link to this thread that he put together. But he is a former. 777 pilot, also a former 747 pilot, and now flies this 767, I believe. So he knows his way around a Boeing flight deck. But he laid out kind of, okay, here's what happened on the flight deck. Because the crew can't see the engine. There's no side view mirrors on a 777, though that would be amusing. They can't look back and say, oh, that's what happened. So they've got instrumentation telling them what happened, and there are non-normal checklists that they can run to make sure that they get back onto the ground safely. And this all happens in less than 20 minutes from incident to flying the airplane, communicating with air traffic control that they need to return immediately, figuring out all of the checklists that they need to run, all of the configurations for the aircraft, given the fact that the engine is gone, and then landing safely and dealing with with everything else. So all under 20 minutes. And that's one of the things that I think we talk about the engineering of the aircraft, but I don't want to overlook the training and the absolute brilliance of the crew in this in this particular incident. Right. And the timing was pretty coincidental. I think earlier in the week, there had been a big debate about single pilot operation of commercial aircraft that John Ostrower of the Air Current, who you should all subscribe to, posted a very interesting article about, I believe, is it an ATR that FedEx is testing yes. in Connecticut to be flown under single pilot operation. And it sparked a big debate about whether commercial aircraft of larger sizes should be operated by a single single pilot, physical pilot. There may be some sort of pilot on call on the ground to communicate with an external externally in, in emergency situations. And it was just very, very interesting that we had that debate the very same week of a, a major incident where I'm sure they definitely needed both pilots up front, one to fly the plane, another to troubleshoot the issue and work the radio, working together to solve the issue. I'm not sure I'd be too comfortable with one person handling that up front. That sounds kind of overwhelming. Yeah. And to, I guess be fair to the news that broke earlier in the week about what FedEx and Sikorsky are up to. We're not talking about passenger aircraft yet. Yet. I have yet to talk to someone. We'll get off on a tangent here because I think that's what we do best. But I have yet to talk with someone who thinks that single pilot commercial passenger flight is a good idea. I haven't found that person. And if you are listening to this podcast and you are that person, please write us podcast at fr24.com and explain to me or at least give me a decent reason why because no one's been able to to articulate that to me and yet everyone always assumes that's where we're headed. And I just don't yeah. understand that. I mean, it's a very strange time in that we have 
two pilot operation of commercial aircraft, but in the GA space, they have aircraft flying up there now that can navigate, aviate, communicate, and automatically land at the push of a button by a passenger. So it's not like the technology doesn't exist today to do single pilot operation. The technology exists now to do zero pilot operation. But is it safe? Should we be doing it? That's a whole other question. Yeah. And certainly the topic of a forthcoming episode of this very podcast, I think we'll have to to sit down with some people who know what they're talking about and have looked into the future and can tell us a bit more about what's going to happen or what they think is going to happen and where where companies are going. Because the single pilot research that FedEx and Sikorsky are doing with an ATR-42, which is interesting to me in its own right. That's the beginning of something. And certainly given all of the news about urban air mobility and EV tall and, and all of that, we're definitely headed down a path where people are going to be flying in some type of conveyance that doesn't have a pilot eventually. But is that fixed wing aircraft? Is that just small pods basically in an urban environment, who knows. So getting back to United 328, we've got the initial NTSB report that says there was evidence of metal fatigue on the fan blade. So this is not the first incident of an engine failure of this particular type of engine recently. It's not even the second one. Within the past three years, it is the third incident. Jason, we've got United 328 this weekend, and then the other two were? We have JAL 904 just a few months ago, December 4th, 2020. Remember 2020? What a fun year that was. That was, uh, that that was, was a decade ago. Yeah, a decade ago. That was operating between Okinawa and Tokyo, categorized as a serious incident, 189 passengers on board. Again, an- another very nicely loaded aircraft for COVID times. And then we go back in time to 2018, February 13th with the United 1175 SFO to once again, Honolulu. Also Honolulu. Sequentially, actually, one aircraft registration number off from this past week's incident, which was... Can we talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I'll get into that. So okay. <laughs> um, this, this past weekend's incident happened to November 772 UA. Obviously, they needed to make up that flight with a different aircraft for the passengers who still wanted to continue on to Hawaii. So United brought out November 773 UA, which you may remember from United 1175 in 2018. That's just weird. I... Uh... I know that it has the actual aircraft has no bearing on the engine. I, but still. And I'm sure this was just like someone at United going, oh, this is terrible. We need to find an aircraft. Let's just find whatever you can. We've got this one here. It's ready to go. We can put it back into service. And I doubt anyone even even thought about that. No, no. If somebody had made that connection at Denver Airport at the time, somebody maybe would have said, no, no, no. Not that one. We'll we'll just get another one. But again, there's no connection between the registration of the aircraft and you know and the engine. No. Just interesting trivia aside from all of this is that seven seven two UA, the incident aircraft from this weekend, is line number five. It's the fifth triple seven ever built. I just thought that was interesting that we're reaching back that far in the build order. 
Yeah. So after the incident, after some minor investigation occurred, and keeping in mind the, the recent incidents, we have some unusually quick moving action from Boeing and the FAA. Boeing itself on February 22nd, which is what was that, Sunday, I think? Yes, so not even, yes not this even all happened within ball. a day. Within a day, Boeing put out a statement saying that there are 69 in-service aircraft and 59, uh, I'm sorry, 69 in-service and 59 in storage. 777 is powered by the Pratt & Whitney 4000-112 engines. This comes after Japan's Civil Aviation Bureau had grounded the aircraft. Boeing itself, just about a day after the incident, called for the grounding of this particular variant of the 777 with this particular engine, which is a stark contrast from the 737 MAX accidents where they went on for weeks and months going on about how perfectly safe the aircraft was until another one crashed. And then they continued to claim how safe it was. In this case, very immediate action by first some government entities, then the FAA, then Boeing itself calling for a total grounding, probably because this doesn't have that huge of an impact on global flight operations at this point. Yeah. I mean, so... By the 21st, Japan grounded all of the 777s with the, the same engine. The FAA comes out and says, we're working on an emergency airworthiness directive. And that came out last night. But it says, we're working on them. So we're going to ground all the planes. So I, I think effectively at that point, airlines were saying, we're done with this. I think we should step back for a moment and note, you already said it doesn't affect a whole lot of, a whole lot of aircraft. 125 aircraft in total. And that includes in-service aircraft air, and aircraft in storage, and some aircraft that that are technically in storage but are never going to fly again, including United Airlines, Japan Airlines, ANA, Asiana, and Jin Air. So, so basically, a U.S., South Korea, and Japan issue. And so, United came out right after the FAA said and said, "We're not going to wait for the EAD. We're, we're taking them out. We're done." We'll do what the EAD says, but we're not going to fly them. We're done flying them for now. Boeing comes out and says, yes, we, su we support not flying them until the FAA says what to do. And then it took Pratt & Whitney a while to say something. Yeah. And when they did eventually say something, it wasn't much. But at that point, I don't think they really need to say much other than acknowledge that something is going on. Yeah. So they said they were working with the operators and regulators to support the revised inspection interval of the Pratt & Whitney PW4000 engines that power these particular Boeing 777 aircraft. Then the NTSB released its preliminary investigative update and says that two fan blades were fractured. One was fractured near the root and then another about mid-span. We don't know yet if they both fractured at the same time, which seems unlikely, but who knows? And they didn't say which one fractured first. So I, I won't conjecture or make any speculation there, but there are two fan blades that have been fractured there. And then the UK Civil Aviation <laughs> Authority banned flights by they these They came in and said, us too. Not that they had any 777s to deal with. It, there was an off chance that I guess United could send one of these aircraft to the UK, but that doesn't seem very likely. And then so on the 22nd, the NTSB came out with their photos of the engine and they were quite the, uh, quite the close up. 
Yeah, you can see right into the, I guess, the cross section of one of the fan blades, which is not something you ever want to see. No. And what's interesting about these fan blades is they're hollow. They're titanium fan blades and they are hollow. And this is a, a unique design to this particular, the PW4000 112-inch engine. So not something you normally get to see. Uh, no. So I, I guess that's interesting in its own right. We also got to see the NTSB investigators reading out the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, which I think was yeah. pretty cool. That's not something you typically get to see, especially not that quickly. Right, right. And it was very interesting to see kind of the technology that they they use and, and how that process works, if only it was just through a couple of photos. So then we get to to Monday. I earlier said that the incident took place on the 20th. It took place on the 21st. And those were all statements that came out the day of. Then the next day, the NTSB made their statements. Then the 23rd, so two days after the incident, the FAA issues its emergency airworthiness directive. And this directive requires thermal acoustic image inspection of all of the first stage low pressure compressor section blades on these specific Pratt & Whitney PW4000 series engines before their next flight. So every single blade on every single engine before that engine is put back on an aircraft and flown again needs to be inspected. Pratt and Whitney came out and said, you're going to have to send all of those engine blades to us. If we don't include spare engines and just take the number of aircraft in service times two, that's 2,750 blades. I don't know how long the inspection process lasts. We've reached out to, to discuss that. But even if it doesn't take that long, that's still a lot of blades to inspect. Yeah. I mean, there's also going to be some amount of delay in just getting all the aircraft somewhere they can be serviced and physically removing all of these fan blades, packaging them up and sending them over to Pratt & Whitney. That alone is probably going to take a matter of weeks. Yeah. And so you've got the physical act of moving the aircraft to where you can remove the fan blades. Then you have the actual removal, packaging, and shipping of the fan blades. Then they have to get in a queue for inspection. So that to me says weeks to months from the outset. Then they all have to be inspected. This is on top of the fact that most of these aircraft are not long for the world anyway. Japan Airlines has already said, we're done with the 777-200s by the end of this year. I mean, at this point, do they just say, okay, we're done with these? Yeah, it's going to be different for different airlines. Some of the United aircraft have the newest Polaris product on board, so they're probably not going to want to ditch those. And then there's the case of Jin Air in South Korea, whose subsidiary of Korean Air, its entire 777 fleet, of which I think is only five, are all of these affected aircraft. So that would be effectively removing an entire fleet type from Genera's fleet, which is, I don't know if that's something they're prepared to do. Anything goes in COVID era and post-COVID era, but that's a big deal for some airlines more so than others. Yeah. And thinking about United especially, they've got 24 in service and another 25 in storage. So they've got kind of a buffer that they can use as as the inspections come through. And certainly given the fact that we are in a period of, of lower utilization and there are 
more idle aircraft, not necessarily enough to cover the immediate grounding of, of 25, or, or maybe there are, and United's going to just kind of absorb this without too many issues. But it seems like the, it's United's problem to solve for the most part. As yeah. far as what to do, what to do about not the like the actual engine issue, but what do you do with all of these aircraft? Right. So we'll we'll have to see what the NTSB and the FAA agree upon at some point in the future. But what, what's noteworthy is that the NTSB's final report of the United accident from 2018, which was pretty damn similar with one sequential registration number off, laid out its probable cause and findings. And I'll read a, a snippet of that. And basically, it was that the fracture of a fan blade due to Pratt & Whitney's continued classification of the TAI inspection, which is just what we just mentioned, that those fan blades will have to go out to Pratt & Whitney to be inspected. The process that they were using was new and emerging technology that permitted them to continue accomplishing the inspection without having to develop a formal defined initial and recurrent training program or an inspector certification program. The lack of training resulted in the inspector making an incorrect evaluation of an identification that resulted in a blade with a crack being returned to service where it eventually fractured. So it's kind of troubling that to me personally, at least that a very, very similar, if not identical accident occurred in 2018 where the cause was determined to be the correct fan blade and then the process about inspecting it. And here we are with extremely similar, if not identical accidents in 2020 and 2021. Whatever Pratt & Whitney had process change put in place didn't seem to be effective, did it? At that point, no. One hopes that given the NTSB report from 2018 or from the 2018 incident and the I'm going to assume very close scrutiny this time around, that process has been greatly improved. I don't know at this point much about the actual the actual process. I am ignorant of the inspection process. However, one assumes that they will be doing a very, very, very thorough job regardless. Yeah. So that thorough, thorough job you think they're going to do, that equals time. So it, it may actually be quite a bit of time before these aircraft are in the air again. And like you said, some may never fly again. Well, probably one more time and that would be out to the boneyard to get scrapped. I mean, there's more than a handful that are already there. United's got a good number already in Roswell. There's a couple in Victorville. So not far to go for some of them should they decide not to take them back up again. Obviously, we're in early days of the investigation, even though it seems fairly straightforward as to to what precipitated the incident. The NTSB is surely going to dig into to what exactly was the root cause, and we'll learn more about how often this engine was, was inspected or when this engine was last inspected and, and things like that. So still more to learn, and we will definitely stay tuned, especially to see when some of these aircraft start flying again. Yep. And on that note, I think we should probably take a break. Let us take a break and we will come back and talk about, well, a lot of other stuff, including a helicopter on Mars. Spoiler alert. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now ready for a segment we like to call Jason wrote a bunch of stuff down and he's going to tell us about it. Yes. And I wrote a bunch of stuff down. What I've actually done is opened a bunch of tweets from various people, including myself. The first couple 
from Ned Russell from Skift. And it's a little segment I guess we'll just call Fleet Additions and Removals, which is quite interesting for the year 2020 because of right now I'm just kind of waving my hands around and pointing at various things. But a lot happened. A lot of aircraft were removed from fleets. A lot were actually added to fleets. So in the case of American, they retired 95 mainline aircraft all of the A330s, all of the 757s, all of the 767s, all of the E190s, and they actually took delivery of 30 aircraft. A319s, which are used, I don't believe those were any new aircraft, 321neos, which are new, of course, 73maxes, and 787-8s, I believe, which is little stubby. Yeah, little stubby. You don't see many of those being delivered anymore. And then there's down in uh, south of the border, Aero, Mexico, removed six 737-700s and nine of the 800s, which is actually quite a significant chunk of their fleet, plus its entire Aero, Mexico Connect fleet of nine E-170 aircraft. Not saying all of Aero, Mexico Connect was removed, but the nine E-170s were. Then we move on to Air France KLM, which had a lot going on. In total, they added and removed a total of negative 33 aircraft. A bulk of that comes from the long-haul fleets of both Air France and KLM, where all eight 747s from KLM's fleet were removed. All 10 of the A380s in Air France's fleet were removed. Three A350-900s were actually added. Four A340-300s were removed. And over at the medium-haul fleet, 13 E145s were removed. So a lot of of aircraft coming and going, mostly going at this point. That's, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about how many entire fleets, or I guess sub-fleets for airlines, were removed last year. Yeah, specifically from the... The long-haul side, Air France KLM removed a total of 19 long-haul aircraft in total. I guess I'll run down the numbers exactly, but it removed eight 747s, added one seven eight seven nine, one seven eight seven ten, all the A380s. They added three A350-900s, and you have four A340-300s removed. They have one left. They also removed two A330-200s. <laughs> so... 19 long-haul aircraft removed from the Air France KLM fleet. That's a lot of capacity. Is that one still in June livery? That would be amazing. I don't know. The one A340 that's still I think it's grounded. They still, it's only on this list because they still own it. So I I think until they officially remove it from property, it is on this list. I don't think they're actually operating that lone 340-300. But no, I don't believe it's in June livery. But what if? (laughs) But what if? Uh, what else has come and gone? That's all I got. That's all you got. What, what I, about, I got uh, okay. We have some new in-service and we have one airline that completely shut down. Ah, uh, I guess you, yeah, you could count that. Air Namibia is no more quite suddenly shutting down effective February 11th. They say all flight operations will be canceled and aircraft are returning to base, which I assume means they will be returned to their leasing company. If they were leased, I assume they were. But this was not a particularly large airline. They had 10 aircraft at the demise, four A319, two A330-200s, which I don't believe were all that old and were in somewhat of a nice configuration on the interior. But add that to the glut of available wide bodies, 
aircraft on the market, and also four E-135s, of which they still had two outstanding orders, according to Wikipedia. Not anymore. No. So this week, or rather last week, SCAT became the latest airline and the first in Asia to bring its 737 MAX fleet back into the fold. Not a big fleet, one MAX 8, one MAX 9, or as I guess we're calling them 1737-8 and 1737-9. But those are, are back in service as of last week. And so not a huge proportion of the fleet, 10% of their 20 airline fleet, but will be a growing portion of their fleet. Jason, what was the airline that replaced all of their 737s with 737 MAX? It was only like four of them. It's escaping me now. Of all of their aircraft? Um, yeah. Um, well, you, for one, you have Cayman Airways, which was planning on doing that, but hadn't got to that stage yet. There are Their aircraft are like 73400s, which are ancient. I don't recall of any airline that completely went max. There was one airline that ordered, I think they had just four on order. And now I cannot remember for the life of me which it was, but I bet they're looking forward to getting getting back in the air as soon as they can. I will look that up later and hopefully remember what that airline is. And then we will put it in the show notes. And before anyone listens to the podcast, they'll say, oh, Ian knows what he's talking about. Not Ian doesn't know what he's talking about and can't remember anything. Yeah, we'll do, uh, do let me know when you figure out what airline I it is. I will. I mean, we could just go through the list of all the aircraft, nah, all the airlines that have it, but I wouldn't yeah, recommend it. No, we're, we're not going to do that. You know what we are going to do? We're going to talk about the weather on Mars. Oh, that's unusual. I know, because it's awesome. So this podcast is, I would say, 99.9% devoted to commercial aviation on Earth. But every once in a while, we have to kind of step outside our comfort zone and talk about something else because it is so cool. And the landing on Mars and what they are about to do over the next couple of months is, I absolutely think, worth mentioning. The landing of a rover on Mars using a rocket-powered sky crane that we got to watch video of. The rover is holding a helicopter that is charging its batteries right now and will fly within the next couple of months on Mars. Yeah, that's cool. So we've seen the sky crane maneuver before with uh, the rover Curiosity a few years ago. So that wasn't new. What was new was actually seeing HD video that was not a rendering or a depiction of what was actually happening. We actually got to see the rover land on Mars, which is pretty cool. But then it's also carrying something new, a little helicopter named Ingenuity. And I only in the last few minutes took the time to actually learn about this thing. And it is this tiny little helicopter, four pounds, 1.8 kilograms, that will be eventually they will identify a helipad for this thing and they'll plop it down. It will charge its 650 watt battery, I believe, via solar panels. And at some point, it will take off on a couple powered flights, which will be the first powered flight, I guess you could say, on another planet if you discount the sky crane. Do we discount the sky crane? 
I want to discount the Sky Crane because it didn't start from Mars. Okay, so it, because it never touched Martian soil, right? It is not right. a powered flight from Martian land. Okay, the, I, I mean, I can buy if, that. if we if we want to split. Martian hairs. But the way we can tie this back to what we normally talk about and what is one of the most interesting things to me is if they're going to fly something on Mars, you should probably be concerned with what's the weather doing. Right. And so you're, you're about to take off into a heavy gust no, of wind. It'll be a very short flight. It'll be like watching every first time drone pilot with their like cheap bought on Amazon drone thing oh, go, you know, flying. So let's hope that doesn't happen. But Airbus has a weather sensor that is built into the rover. And so my question was, are we going to see are we going to see METARs on Mars? And Airbus's answer was basically, well, we're not going to call it that, but yeah. Yes. We will produce weather reports and then we will fly when the weather is good. So definitely looking forward to that. And I think that's just going to be a whole lot of fun when it finally happens. Yeah, and some more information on this little drone helicopter. It's actually 350 watts of power. It's even less. The total length of the rotors is just about four feet or 1.2 meters tip to tip. It only will go in bursts of 90 second flights per day up to a flight range of up to 980 feet. Actually, I'm sorry, that's the range. So I guess the horizontal range of 980 feet, the altitude will only actually be 15 feet or five meters. So this thing is not exactly going to take off and fly around Mars as you would see in a movie. It's going to get 15 feet in the air. If it but works, it will do it nonetheless. If it ecstatic. works at all. If it works, I will be ecstatic. Yes, that, that's pretty cool. Let's kind of move on to some less exciting but no less important stuff. The FAA's Office of Inspector General released a report early because our good friends over at Reuters and another outlet got a hold of it. But this is the Inspector General's report into the the certification of the 737 MAX, and, and Jason has more on that. Okay. Yeah, I guess we can get into this. I don't think anyone will agree that the FAA did a spectacular job certifying the 737 MAX, and the OIG in this report kind of says not much has changed, unfortunately. And I'll, I'll quote here, while the FAA and Boeing followed established certification processes for the 737 MAX 8, we identified limitations in FAA's guidance and processes that impacted certification and led to a significant misunderstanding of the MCAS on board, the flight control software identified as contributing to the two accidents. It goes on to say the FAA certification guidance does not adequately address integrating new technologies into existing aircraft models, which is particularly important because that's exactly what happened here. Second, the FAA did not have complete understanding of Boeing's safety assessments performed on MCAS until after the first accident. Communication gaps further hindered the effectiveness of the certification process. In addition, management and oversight weaknesses limit the FAA's ability to assess and mitigate risks with Boeing's ODA. I don't know what ODA stands for. But basically, this is saying that the FAA's certification process for bolting new things onto old planes and Boeing's process for transparency and certification, was none of it was good. So the ODA is the, the designated person who technically works for Boeing, but is working as the certifying 
authority. So remember with the, the 737 MAX and other aircraft, the FAA delegated some of the certification authority to people who actually worked for Boeing. And that was one of the huge friction points between people who technically worked for Boeing, but were in charge of certifying that everything that Boeing was doing was safe and met the certification standards. Right. And ODA stands for Organization Designation Authorization. That rolls right off the tongue. The report at the end of the introduction here goes on to say that while the agency has taken steps to develop a risk-based oversight model and address concerns of undue pressure at the Boeing ODA, it is not clear that the FAA's current oversight structure and processes can effectively identify future high-risk safety concerns at the ODA which is a particularly interesting line. Yeah. I haven't read the full report, but having read the cover sheet, I am now interested in seeing what the entire report says. So once we get the link to that, we will put it in the show notes so that everyone else can read along this weekend after the podcast comes out, because I know that everyone is looking forward to reading an inspector general report over the weekend. Or at least um, you and you alone. Yeah. At least me and me alone. Let's close out with a few things, some flights of interest. One, KLM is currently taking delivery of its first E195E2 from Embraer. So that'll be home by the time the podcast comes out. PHNXA is the registration of that particular aircraft. And then Iceland Air is sending a 767 to Antarctica to pick up the final crew change at the Troll Research Station. Longtime listeners may remember Troll as the research station where we installed our first Antarctic receiver. We're now up to six at various fields around Antarctica. But Troll was the, the first one and so Iceland Air is sending 767 TFISN. It will reach there in the next few days, and then it will depart Antarctica on the 27th. And that'll be the last flight from Troll for the foreseeable future as Antarctic winter sets in and it gets very dark and much more cold and all of that good fun stuff comes to an end that happens during the Antarctic summer. And yes, all you, you folks who... Overwintering there, can enjoy it. Definitely don't want to miss that flight home. You will regret that one more than any <laughs> other flight in your life. Goodness. So right now that aircraft is actually in flight. It is stopping in Cape Town on the way down to Troll Base. So it, it's actually making the nonstop Reykjavik to Cape Town. So it's already five hours, 18 minutes into the flight and has another eight hours to go. That's pretty impressive for a 767, but I assume... I actually don't assume I know who's on board. It is not a fully loaded aircraft by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right. That's still a very long flight for a 7-6. Yeah. But when an aircraft's almost empty, you can you can do anything you want, really. Yeah, which is interesting, actually. Interesting. I, I, yes. Yeah. There's, <laughs> I read a tweet earlier about who's on board this aircraft. It has a crew of 20, including six pilots, 13 flight attendants, and one mechanic. That ratio seems a little odd to me that you'd have 13 flight attendants, but only one mechanic when you're flying to 
Antarctica, maybe double down on the number of mechanics, I guess. <laughs> maybe the, one of the pilots brought some extra wrenches or yeah, that's flight true. Attendant, you know. a couple, couple screwdrivers or whatever. It's definitely I mean, not a place you want to have a broken airplane. You only need one person who knows what they're doing because ostensibly they can all pitch in. And having talked to, to some of the good people at Troll, they do have some very knowledgeable engineers there who are used to working in extremely difficult conditions. So let's hope that none of that is needed. Yeah. Uh, 13 flight attendants too. That's an oddly high number, isn't it? Well, I guess it makes sense given the fact that they're going to have to fly from Antarctica, which is a six-hour flight, and then from Cape Town all the way back to Reykjavik. And I don't know if they can make it from Cape Town to... Actually, it, would, it wouldn't even be Cape Town to Reykjavik. It'd be Cape Town to probably Oslo. And so right. I'm not sure if they'll do that nonstop or if they'll stop somewhere else. It seems a like a lot of crew basically. Yeah. When you take into account like duty hours and rest and things like that, it starts to make more sense. So the two last things, one kind of out of nowhere this week, the NTSB announced that the TWA 800 reconstruction will be dismantled and destroyed as per the agreement with the families of the victims of TWA 800. Thoughtfully um, destroyed. Yeah. I mean, yes. Not just, I don't even know what you would do other than that. But yeah, exactly. There will be a purposeful dismantling and all of the remaining wreckage will be disposed of in, in a respectful manner. Yeah. So they had been using the reconstruction for basically training purposes over the last, what, what has it been, like 20 years at this point. They yeah. will stop, us stop using the reconstruction July 7th, 2021. At that point, they will thought, literally, they say, thoughtfully document the reconstruction using various 3D techniques. And that's one of the reasons they say they are getting rid of this full-scale reconstruction, that technology has advanced to the point where it's kind of given it all it can at this point when investigative techniques such as 3D scanning and drone imagery, which I think is pretty cool, have, they say, lessened the relevance of large-scale reconstruction in teaching modern investigative techniques. And just a timeline note, it has been 25 years, mm. which makes me feel very old. old. That TWA 800, I, I think, is probably the first large scale air accident that I can like vividly remember watching on the news. I don't. And the this accident was over Long Island where I grew up, and I don't really have any recollection of it. Maybe I've always watched too much TV. I, I don't know. Quite possible. Yeah. But that's happening. It kind of came out of no, like I didn't know that any of this was in the works. And to see the announcement kind of, I, th I think, caught a lot of people off guard. To close out the show, if you haven't visited the site in the last week or so, surprise. If you have, we hope you're enjoying the new web interface. We updated the web interface, so flightradar24.com. The apps have, have not changed. In fact, the website now has more of the feel that the apps do. That's by design to kind of give a consistent feel across all three platforms because most of the people that use Flight Radar 24 don't just use the web or the apps. They use all three platforms or at least two of the three. So we wanted to make the look and feel you know, a little bit more consistent. We added a bunch of features. And the big thing here, and, and I'll put a link in the show notes to kind of the guided tutorial, my colleague Gabe, who, who walks through all of the changes that we've made. 
But the important thing here and the thing that I'm super excited about is the fact that most of the changes we made to the site, you can't even see. Their performance improvements on the back end, they're getting rid of a lot of old code that was preventing development, that was preventing us from doing a lot of the things that we wanted to do. So even though this does include a lot of, of changes and updates, what it does is it really enables us to, to move forward with some of the development projects that we've really wanted to do for a while, but have been held back. So we updated filters. You can now do a lot of combined filters. Things are automatically saved, but we're also going to go a step further and add a lot of new filter options and make some additions there and, and make it a little bit more customizable and things like that. And that's just one example. There's a lot of other stuff that our team is working on that I'm really excited about and really looking forward to talking about in the near future. So if you haven't done that, go to the website, flightradar24.com and check out the new stuff and, and let us know what you think. If you have any feedback, podcast at fr24.com or drop us a note in the contact us form off the website. And we'd love to hear what you think. I know Jason, I've forced Jason to play around with it a lot and just to make sure that, that he could break it. And he in fact did a few times. And so we were able to get some of those things fixed. Bound to happen. And, Always and, does. Yeah. That's, that's what Jason's good for. So please check it out and let us know what you think. We're really proud of of all the work that the team did, or I'm really proud of all the work that the team did and looking forward to doing even more soon. If you like the podcast, please, by all means, leave a review for us. If you don't like the podcast, leave a review and tell us what you would like to see. And we'll try and do that. If you are not subscribed to the podcast, please do so. That certainly helps other people find the podcast and it's a big boost. And you don't have to find it every week. It just comes right to you. And if nothing else, it's an additional click in order to be lazy for the rest of your days. So highly encouraged. This has been episode 105 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. 